1: My guest is Kirk Peterson, import wine specialist for Southern Glacier's Wine and Spirits of Nevada. He's also one of a very select group of Italian wine ambassadors in the U.S., certified through Vin Italy International, and a certified sommelier and a member of the court of master sommeliers. And you can always follow Kirk on Twitter at Peterson Kirk, So it's a reverse of his name. And welcome back to the show, Kirk. Thanks, Eric. Good to be here. It's always fun to talk wine with you because Southern Nevada and Las Vegas in particular is a, I would say, one of the epicenters. I don't know if you could be one of the epicenters. You could be the epicenter, maybe one of the important centers of wine for the last 10 or 15 years. And you've played a part in it. And I'm wondering what accounts for that popularity. What is it about wine as opposed to beer or other liquor, or I should say, or liquor that Wine just seems to be taking off and consistently taking off to the point where, as I mentioned in my opening, you're now a, uh, have been for several years, a certified sommelier. And that title, that position has increased as well, not only around the world, but in Las Vegas. So that's a long question, and I'm sure you'll give me a relatively short answer, but take your time.
0: Well, I mean, I think there's been an emergence, I think, uh, of interest in wine because there's been more outlets for information about it. I think that's probably the fundamental change that's happened. Despite, you know, wine being somewhat of an anachronistic product, you know, being something that's, you know, ancient in many ways, it's definitely benefited from the internet. Because the reality is, is that there's a tremendous diversity of wine products. Oftentimes, it's they're somewhat obfuscated in terms of what they're really going to be like due to the fact that the labels are written in other languages that might not be immediately apparent, but it's something that's benefited from increased information on the internet.
1: It is amazing how social media and the internet have increased awareness and knowledge of wine. And not that you have much more sophisticated consumers of the product, but certainly much more educated consumers of the project. There is a difference In my way of thinking, you can be very knowledgeable about a product such as wine, and yet it takes a while to get to that level of sophistication where you can determine or sense the differences among wines, even subtle differences.
0: Well, certainly. and I think that sophistication is maybe sort of the result of simply just education. The reality is that it's hard to have an opinion about something that you experience rarely. And realistically, the more, the more that you drink wine, the more you're able to form an opinion. And it's not exactly that you're going to start at one place and necessarily end up at a, at a different place that, in an absolute sense, more knowledgeable, but you're certainly going to be more knowledgeable about what it is that you like. And at the end of the day, that's actually the more important
1: Yes, yes. You've stressed that several times in, in previous appearances on the show where it really comes down to personal choice.
0: I mean, it does. I mean, like, aesthetics are not all relative. Like, there there's someone who all they do is taste wine. There's a pretty good chance they're going to be able to sort of deconstruct what your the, your palate biases are and recommend something that you would enjoy. But realistically, the only way that you can really form an opinion on something is by exposing yourself to it.
1: It's always funny to me, in a sense, because of your background. You come from a small town in northern Nevada. You came to Las Vegas to attend film school, and then you worked in the entertainment industry in LA. Even Mm -hmm. in Australia, you came back to Las Vegas, and then there it is. Wine and Spirits became your passion, and you have a new position now at Southern Glacier's Wine and Spirits of Nevada. What does that entail? I, I introduced you as the import specialist for the group, but what does that entail? Are you traveling a lot? Are you looking at various wines that you feel would be important for Southern Nevada and Las Vegas?
0: Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, my role is to make sure that it's, you know, sort of an, of an oversight position. So there are people are pulled in a million different directions at once. And fundamentally, what my role is to do is to basically be an advocate for imported wines, predominantly Italian and other wines from Europe, but there can be, as I mentioned before, something as simple of an impediment as it being in different languages. These can make it so that just as you were to look at a trend of wine sales over, you know, any given period, you can just notice a small decrease in how much of these wines are presented to people, simply due because they're difficult. It's it's more it's easy to take a label, present a label written in English from Napa Valley to a customer. Because that's something that really, for a lot of different reasons, that we all kind of understand. We all have an expectation of what that might be like. Things get a little bit more difficult once you start dealing with imported wines. And my role is to make sure that that deficit is not
1: there. Does technology help you in this sense? People can with the software that's available now, people can point their phone, their phone camera, at a label that's in Italian, for example, and it would theoretically translate it into English.
0: Theoretically, it would, you know, and that's one of those funny things. But yes, it could translate it. But translating words and translating meaning is somewhat different. It's like why idioms and Oftentimes, jokes don't really work in other languages. You know, when you read poetry that rhymes in Italian and you translate it to English, it doesn't rhyme anymore. Yeah, well, and Some of the point. effect is lost.
1: Right. I hadn't thought about it that way before, but you're right. So your role now with the, with the company is to look out and see what wines are out there that are worth bringing to Las Vegas, and then I'm assuming that the wine... Because we've talked about this in the past, too. I mean, you have visitors that are coming from all over the world to Las Vegas, and you also have a substantial local population that's been growing over the decades to the point where we have a, a vibrant city. So you're looking at it from your perspective, I assume, as both wine for visitors and wine for locals. Certainly.
0: I mean, realistically, my role has evolved into just a larger scope. Initially, I was an advocate for Italian wines, in three restaurants that were on Las Vegas Boulevard. Now, fundamentally, I'm an advocate for Italian wines in all restaurants in Las Vegas and right? In Nevada.
1: Right, which is why I wanted to have you on to talk about that wider agenda, so to speak, or wider portfolio in that sense. So when you look at wines that are being imported, let's stick with Italy for now because you mentioned Italy earlier. What is your determination for whether or not they weren't being imported for use in restaurants on the Las Vegas Strip and downtown. In other words, does it have to meet a certain criteria, or is it really more your judgment with your background and your certifications that this particular wine would work versus this other particular wine would not work?
0: The reality is that it's actually you know it's very Keynesian economics. It's uh, is that there's a meeting of the middle. Like that there's a uh, there's an availability of product that is then meant to match the needs of a market. And it's where those two come together. So I both find things that I think that are applicable, that perhaps the market may not be aware of. And simultaneously, the market reaches out with their own needs and demands. And and that's basically how we build a portfolio.
1: I can't let you get away with just using that Keynesian reference. So I'm going to throw my own reference in, which is Gresham's Law. And that is, does bad wine chase out good wine? It's a variation of Gresham's Law because it had to do with currency, but I mean, does bad wine chase out good wine, or you reach a certain level where the good wine is so good that people want that despite the fact that there's a flood of not so good wine?
0: Oh, that's almost a two part that's a two parter yes speaking in about wine in general, yes, just in general is, right is that is it, like, there really isn't it's rare to find bad wine anymore. Technology, technology for all intents and purposes, has, has had the greatest impact in the quality of wine, very much on the lower end of wine production, not on the high end. You know, like the great and famous estates that have been owned by barons and dukes and kings and marcheses, and, and that have had enough money where if it's hailing, they can release a, a fleet of people with umbrellas to shade vines if need be. You know, the, the really prestigious estates have always made tremendously good wine, largely because they have the capital to invest in doing that. They're able to be, they, they're solvent to a point where they're able to make really tough decisions, not make a, not a, a substandard wine just in order to make money that year. Because, again, you only get to make wine once a year, and cash flow can be an issue for these, for these wineries. But with the advent of an expansion of affordable winemaking technology, that has had more of an impact on modest styles of wine than it has at the top end.
1: Interesting. So I think it's not so much bad wine as it would be less expensive wine or inexpensive wine, which in years past tended to be of a certain type. And that's, I think, more to the point that from what you're saying, as I understand it, that with these new technologies and wine production techniques, that you can even make an inexpensive wine good.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, in the in the 70s, in, in the 70s, when there was starting to become a, uh, it was becoming more and more popular for Like, in the case of, like, just making crisp, clean, varietally correct white wines, there is an increase in stainless steel tanks with temperature control. So temperature control allows you to really control the final outcome of the fermentation because different flavors occur at different temperatures. And also, they're actually easy to clean. They're easy to maintain. But they were also expensive. And when you bought one, not only was it expensive – it was, there was a tremendous learning curve that went into it. You know, it's like the first person that ever bought a VCR, and they didn't know how it worked, and it, you know, costs, you know, in today's dollars, thousands of dollars, and might not have been compatible with with other technology at the time. Luckily, that was in the 70s. At this point, because wine technology does move somewhat slow, again, because wine's only made once a year, but now there's been both the learning curve has been overcome there's tons of available information for winemakers so they're not really risking anything it's not it's they have to learn a new skill they don't have to be the one who develops a new skill
1: right and the
0: price of this technology has come down that it's become widespread it's actually quite common
1: so that's the good news about wine one quick question before we take a break and that is my famous cork question i know that they got away from in many cases the natural cork, and they were using substitutes. Are Where are we in the cork uh, continuum at this point?
0: Uh, we're still in a long, drawn-out, perpetual argument, uh, like so many things in wine. There has been so uh, alternative enclosures, such as Stelvin, such as Xenolock, such as amalgamated corks or plastic corks, something that are made out of, of a non-cork material or cork that has been tested, shred apart and then reconstituted, so it's been fully tested, are still popular and they're still gaining in popularity. And at the high end, there's producers of for all intents and purposes certified cork, where they have chemically or laboratory tested each one of the corks to make sure that there's not going to be any presence of trichloroanethyl in these corks, which is the what ends up tainting the wine. But still, it is very much a A argument of culture in many ways. And it has probably a lot less to do with scientific reality and more to do with people's perception. And perception at the end of the day is king in a market.
1: It is. Let's take a break. My guest, Kirk Peterson, is import wine specialist for Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits of Nevada. He is also one of only a few select Italian wine ambassadors in the United States. Certified through Vin Italy International and a certified sommelier and a member of the Court of Master sommeliers. If you want to follow Kirk, you can follow him on Twitter at Peterson Kirk. We'll be right back.
0: We'll be back with more. Talk about Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. You've seen mobsters and cops face off on the big screen. You've heard the legends of Al Capone and Elliot Ness. But how much do you know about what really happened? Dive into the true stories behind the myths of organized crime and law enforcement at the Mob Museum, the country's finest collection of mob artifacts, history, and interactive exhibits. Find out more and get tickets at themobmuseum.org. Now, let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira.
1: Welcome back. I'm talking with Kirk Peterson. He's import wine specialist for Southern Glacier's Wine and Spirits of Nevada. He's also only one of a handful of Italian wine ambassadors in the U.S., certified through Vin Italy International and a certified sommelier and a member of the Court of Master of Sommeliers. And you can follow Kirk at Peterson Kirk on Twitter. And Kirk, we were talking about corks, I just wanted to have one other quick question on cork before we go on, and that is, is there a difference in terms of the European wines versus American wines as far as who will use a traditional cork versus some of these other kinds of corks?
0: Yeah, generally speaking, all things being equal, there's a tendency to hold on to cork and for wines from Europe, whereas... Conversely, wines from the New World, who are somewhat less burdened by tradition, they, they tend to embrace new technology faster.
1: And in America, we tend to embrace new technology faster, so probably more. The American wines would go in the direction of alternate cork usage.
0: We have a tendency, you know, in many ways, we kind of have a foot in book camp because we definitely are a New World country that is embraces innovation but at the same time, some of our most famous wines are very much homages to old, classic old world wine styles. And so in terms of just the marketing presence, we also have a tendency to have labels that are somewhat harkened back to classic European wines. And cork enclosures and are definitely part of that.
1: Interesting. We talked in the past about the growth of wine in Las Vegas. Are you. Astounded, or just you just know that wine has increased in popularity in the last 10, 15, 20 years in Las Vegas.
0: Well, it definitely has. I mean, we see it in, uh, we see it in Las Vegas, and we see it nationally as well. But are you are you are you, su- are
1: you surprised by that, or astounded by that, or are you just expected that to happen in in the United States in general, and Las Vegas in particular?
0: Well, I mean, hindsight being twenty twenty, I can't really say I'm particularly surprised. Wine overall, fine wine specifically, no, I can't say that I'm surprised. In some of the ways that we see, see these spikes in different categories within wine, I think those are tend to be surprising. And I think they tend to be surprising to everyone within the industry because if anyone was actually capable of accurately prognosticating what the next great wine trend would be, they would just go into that. But oftentimes we're sometimes caught, touch touch unaware.
1: It seems Rosé is had a resurgence in the last year or so.
0: Rosé is definitely hot right now. And, but it's it follows trends, you know. It's, yeah, uh, exactly. Los Angeles is a truly unique market in the entire world. It's fascinating. The 40 million people a year that come through here, mixed with the local economy, creates a, a pretty interesting cauldron of opinions because, and as you can probably appreciate, due to the uh, emphasis... Of hospitality as as the principal industry within Las Vegas, we have per capita probably a much greater level of sophistication in terms of of dining habits for no other reason that we have a lot of world-class restaurants and a lot of people working in those world-class restaurants in Las Vegas compared to our total city population. But then we have all of our visitors and they might come from New York, they might come from Omaha, they might come from really kind of, it's this crazy amalgamation of people from the entire world who come to Las Vegas. So it makes it so that the pattern in terms of consumption can be both quite forward-thinking and sometimes a touch regressive at the very same time, you know, from, from table to table, from buying experience to buying experience.
1: It is a unique market in that sense. What about in terms of demand and volume? And what I mean by that is, and we've talked about this in the past too, Kirk, Las Vegas competes with other cities in terms of various food items, uh, foodstuffs, wine, liquor, etc. In the area of wine, do we tend to drain some from, say, Los Angeles? Because that was the assumption a few years back that we were taking a lot of but normally we go to Los Angeles because of, of the demand here in Las Vegas but via visitors and locals. Well, it depends, you know, it's kind of
0: like what frequent demand we're talking about. Because I would say in the, in the very famous wines, it would not surprise me if we take more than our market share. In the about-to-be-famous wines, we also have a tendency to have a lot of those probably perhaps a a bit more than other markets. But in terms of emerging styles of wine, we're actually a bit behind for all intents and purposes. And the reasoning is obvious when you stop and think about it. If we're a city of 2 million people and we have 48 million people visiting us, the tendency for someone in Las Vegas, just, you know, Joe Buyer. To go into a retail shop, a restaurant, a wine bar, wherever it is that they're consuming wine, the likelihood that any one of those buyers is going to have multiple repeat business to that place is actually quite small. So like by contrast, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, the majority of the people that are going to come into any person's restaurant at that point is most likely a local person who's a repeat customer. And it's easier to have somebody, it's easier to recommend a esoteric or new style of wine that someone might be not, might not be familiar with if they dine at your restaurant, you know, twice a month, twice a week, whatever it may be, versus once a year.
1: They have a sense of trust with the restaurant people.
0: Yeah. yeah. And also, you know, sometimes you think, of, think of, again, you know, just because of our tourist economy, think about the mentality or thought process of Las Vegas. Someone who's going here is most likely coming for one of two reasons, whether business-oriented or pure pleasure. Oftentimes, it's somewhat of a mix of the two. And when they arrive, they oftentimes have a preconceived notion somewhat of what it is they're going to do. And in many ways, we're happy to allow people to do so. That they want to go out and have this grand dinner followed by, you know, a fantastic show, staying in a beautiful hotel, and then they're going to go hit the casino floor afterwards. And it kind of has a tendency to be, they're, they're here to live their dream, and their dream is them, in many ways, calling the shots and getting to have the things that they've always wanted to have, as opposed to sometimes being exposed to something that it never even occurred to them that they may want.
1: So it's, it's an, almost an aspirational wine decision.
0: Indeed. I mean, while at one side of the coin, it's that perhaps an esoteric style of wine, it's more difficult to introduce those to the consumer base that comes through Las Vegas. At the same time, the average amount of money that's spent on any given bottle of wine is much higher than what people would have in a
1: normal daily hometown drinker. Sure, they're on like, vaca- they're on vacation and they're they're living the dream.
0: And they're on vacation or they're they're entertaining clients. Right. So they they will have a tendency to go big. Hence why our market favors a lot of those
1: wines. Yeah, that is a that is amazing. What other trend that I see is more with having to do with sparkling wine? Why is that, Kirk? Do you have a theory on that? Or maybe there is not a theory, maybe it's just a, a certain reason for it.
0: Well, First and foremost, the, the fundamental reason is that sparkling wine's delicious. It's carbon dioxide in solution is, you know, we oftentimes talk about flavors and how there's the four flavors, but then there's really a fifth flavor, which is umami. And then there's other things that inform just simply the way that your palate works and the, the things such as how fat changes the taste of things. But so too does carbon dioxide, for whatever reason. Scientists aren't exactly sure what the rationale for this is. All they know is that it has a definite effect. And so it should be no more surprising that sparkling wine is popular because beer is popular and soda is popular and many carbonate beverages are very popular. But the resurgence, for all intents and purposes, of sparkling wine has largely been driven by Prosecco. And the importance of Prosecco is that it is readily available and less expensive than champagne. Because for whatever reason, and some theorists kind of point back to uh, this is a little bit of a hangover from our last recession where champagne seemed like somewhat of an extravagance. Prosecco does not seem to be extravagant. And as a consequence, people are buying as much as they possibly can. Which once you see a market shift in that direction, everyone else who's capable of making credible and well-made sparkling wine will do so.
1: And it is a light and refreshing taste, and it's not overly sweet, so I think that adds to it as well.
0: Absolutely. And it's a, a, you know, from a market standpoint, one of the enormous advantages of it is that, you know, if you look at other things that have become very popular In the United States, such as like the American whiskey craze or how much emphasis has been given to uh, the Japanese whiskeys, they are somewhat hindered in the same way that fine red wine and some white wine is hindered in that in order for it to reach its pinnacle, it has to undergo extended aging. This is not the case with Prosecco and these fresher styles of sparkling wine.
1: So it saves the time, I guess, in terms of from development to getting it out to the market, so to speak.
0: Exactly. And 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 something and sometimes market forces as simple as that have an enormous impact. I mean if you and I had suddenly, you know, tomorrow decided that we wanted to go into the into the whiskey business, we wouldn't have a really exceptional product for years, if not
1: many, many years. Whereas if we went with champagne or sparkling wine, or specifically sparkling wine, not champagne, but We're talking about domestically, so if we went into sparkling wine business, you and I, we would get it up and running pretty quick.
0: Absolutely. We could realistically harvest and buy, you know, the middle of the summer to the late fall of the next year, have a product on the market that would be able to compete with everything else.
1: Well, I think that's a great way to leave it. I was hoping to have you in before May 25th, which was National Wine Day, but you know what? It still works because wine is wine. Indeed, Kirk is Kirk. And my guest has been Kirk Peterson. He's important wine specialist for Southern Glacier's Wine and Spirits of Nevada. He's also one of a handful of Italian wine ambassadors in the U.S., certified through the Vin Italy International and a certified sommelier and a member of the court of master sommeliers as well. And you can follow Kirk on Twitter at Peterson Kirk. Kirk, thanks so much for being on the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Ira.
1: Always a pleasure. See you next time.
0: You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Las Vegas, to be.